2: This is Tony Hernandez and you're listening to the Immigrant Archive Project podcast. Each week, we take a deep dive into the recesses of our oral history project in order to bring you the voices behind some of our more fascinating conversations. If you enjoy the stories we share and wanna help us bring you more, please join with hundreds of other donors and make a tax-deductible contribution to the Immigrant Archive Project. Thanks to many of you, we've been able to collect thousands of immigrant testimonies which are now being proudly archived at the U.S. Library of Congress. If you'd like to help us expand our work, please go to ImmigrantArchiveProject.org and click on the Donate button. That's ImmigrantArchiveProject.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you. I'm Tony Hernandez, and once again, this is the Immigrant Archive Project podcast. This week's interview features a conversation we filmed back in October of 2012 with an absolutely fascinating young woman by the name of Gabby Pacheco. Gabby is an immigrant rights activist with a mixed status family, and she's experienced firsthand the intricacies and difficulties immigrant families face in the U.S. In fact, in 2006, Immigration and Customs Enforcement raided her home, and her parents and sisters were put into deportation proceedings in an attempt to silence her. She's been central to the advocacy of immigration and immigrant rights, and in 2010, with three other undocumented students, led the Trail of Dreams, a four-month walk from Miami to Washington, D.C. Two years later, she spearheaded the efforts that led to the announcement of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, better known as DACA. A year after we recorded this interview, Gabby became the first undocumented Latina to testify in front of Congress, speaking to the Senate Judiciary Committee about the urgent need for immigration reform. Since then, she's received numerous accolades, Forbes Magazine's 30 Under 30 in Education, 40 Under 40, Latinos in American Politics, and in 2015, she received an honorary doctoral degree in humanities from the New School. Pacheco was even profiled in Elle Magazine alongside America Ferreira, Olivia Wilde, and Anna Kendrick for a feature on the world's most accomplished 30-year-old women. Here's my conversation
3: with Gabby Pacheco. When I was eight years old, I thought that Ecuador was the entire world. And I thought that I was moving just from one house to the other. It was like moving from one city to the other. And interesting enough, I didn't grasp the concept of being really far away. And I remember that I used to watch TV and I would hear this thing that would say, call your loved ones. And it was a Spanish commercial and it had a jingle. So it was very catchy. And I said, uno ochocientos, dos veintiséis, veintisiete, veintisiete. I still remember it to this day. And I would dial it and call my grandparents. But I didn't know at the time that I was calling them collect. And calling from the U.S. to Ecuador collect is very expensive. And I remember that. All the time, I would call them. Every single time, I would see a payphone. That's the first thing I would do, just talk to them. And I think looking back at that, uh, it was a way for me to cope with the fact that I couldn't see my grandparents. But because I had those opportunities to talk to them, um, it didn't feel as distant. And I remember the first time I saw like the map, and I grasped the distance uh, it was so hard like breaking and uh, to see that I was so far away from them and that uh, I couldn't just get in a car and go visit them and see them I imagine life
1: was much different for your parents once they were here talk to me about what what their reality was like
3: so I remember we came uh, we came with visas and like a lot of Country, a lot of people that come from Latin American countries, they come with a little bit of money. Um, and so my parents did come with a little bit of money. And I remember that three, four months into us living in the United States, they already had run out of everything they had been able to accumulate by selling their house and everything that was inside of their home. And there was a lot of anxiety. Um, I remember my mom used to wake up around four in the morning to go to work and she wouldn't come back home until sometimes eight, nine o'clock at night. And I remember that she worked on the weekends, uh, as well, cleaning houses. Uh, she had gone to school here and she had gotten her, uh, what's an LPN license. It's like an assistant nurse. And so she worked with the elderly and she was really happy because, you know, not knowing the language, she was able to pass her Florida, you know, Bar and and she was able to get licensed, but they worked really really hard and um, she was in home most of the time. She was she was working and she would try um, to do as much as she could for us, making sure that there was like food for us and uh, that on Sundays, you know, that she would take a little bit of time to be with us. But I I could sense in my home um, that both of my parents, especially my mom. Uh, that they were working themselves to death to be be able to provide for us. Mm-hmm.
1: Did there come a time where you realized that maybe your your experience was much different than other kids your age?
3: I figured out, or I realized that I was different. That when, even though I had the same grades as other kids, that I was not going to be able to go to college, for instance, was when I was in eighth grade. And my sister had graduated from high school, and she had tried to go to Miami-Dade College to get her nursing degree. And at Miami-Dade College, they had told her that, um, nope, that she didn't have papers, and so she couldn't go to school. And to me, that was such a blow, because since I was in fifth grade, I fell in love with the concept of college and university. And I had been chosen to participate in this big concert that the best of the best, uh, musicians or kids, um, from around the com- county get to go to UM for a week. And, uh, I remember the first time stepping into UM and seeing like the buildings and how big and everybody just walking freely. Um, and I fell in love with it, but it really, I didn't get sold on the idea of a, college or university until uh, all of us were walked into the cafeteria of UM. And I remember all the kids just saying, whoa, and looking around and seeing that they had so many options and there was restaurants inside this cafeteria. And we all had conversations there talking about how we wanted to go to college to be able to, you know, eat what we wanted to eat. (laughs) So in eighth grade, when I come to that reality that my sister can't go to school and I'm like, well, that's my sister. That's going to happen to me. Um, I got really scared. And so if I used to be a good student or, uh, love school, that volume was put times 10. Um, and I just started like absorbing as much as I could from the time that I was in school, because I felt that, I was not going to have that opportunity, like my friends, to go to college uh, because my sister didn't get to do that. And that was probably going to be the reality for me, too. And has that been your reality? No.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Talk to to me about how it's been different for you.
3: Well, the difference between my sisters that didn't, uh, when they graduated from high school, they weren't able to go to college, uh, was that I, I didn't let the no stop me. I actually used that word, you can't, to fuel me, uh, to challenge myself, to say, I'm going to find a way. And I actually found people at Miami-Dade College that saw that fire in me and said, we're going to do whatever we can to help you go to school. And so we were able to find a way to get a visa for me to go to Miami-Dade College as an international student. And I remember the day that uh, after months of every day going in at six in the morning, being the first one waiting for the door to open to say, I have this stuff. Is it enough? And they're like, no, you need this and this. Go back home. It's like, oh. but when they finally gave me my schedule of classes, I saw it. And I looked at it and I cried and I touched the paper because I couldn't even believe that, you know, that was happening. And I touched the paper and I made a promise. And I said to myself, my sisters couldn't go to school. There's friends of mine that didn't get to go to school. And I'm going to school and I'm going to fight to make sure that uh, my sisters and my friends and people like me have an opportunity to go to school.
1: As you mentioned, people at Miami Dade who were helpful. Was there anyone in particular that you can look back on and say, wow, that person really helped me out in a very big way? Is there someone that you're thankful for?
3: There's three women that made it happen. Um, one of them is her name is Sue Georgie. And Sue Georgie was a recruiter, and she had come to one of the fairs that we that they had at the school. And I went up to her and I said, look, I don't have papers, I'm undocumented, but I really wanna to go to school. And I started selling myself to her. I am the president of this organization, I have this GPA and I'm silver knife for this and that. And she's just there like, wow, like, you know, I impressed her and she said, okay, you wanna to go to school, we'll figure out a way. So she started connecting me to people and she connected me uh, to the international students director who is the other person that just started helping me. And Flores, uh, the, the director at Mammy Day College said the same thing. She was like, we figure it out. I don't know how, but we'll figure it out. But I remember then that when I was a little girl doing all these battery of tests that they did in order to place me in school, my parents, what they had done was to ensure that we didn't stay undocumented, They they gave us and they they took us to international student office at Miami Dade County Public Schools and got us student visas. So I originally had a visa when I was in third grade and I lost that visa like my sisters did going from one school to the other. So when I went from elementary school, I lost it going to middle school. And I remember very vividly and clearly when Sophia um, told my parents, Gabby you uh you have to make sure that you stay in school you have this visa called duration status as long as you're going to school you're fine but what they failed to say was if you change schools like when you go from elementary school to middle school you have to change the visa and so i went looking for sophia and sophia still worked there and i said you did this and i was so angry and I told her, you ruined my life. You didn't explain the right way. And I remember my dad being so angry at me and looking at me like, calm down. And then Sophia looked at me with so much compassion and said, I'm sorry, like that's the, the rules. That's what they told me. And then I said, put it on paper. So Sophia smiled and said, I've never seen somebody with so much fire and desire to go to school. I'm gonna help you. And so between these three women um, and tons of other people, but, you know, those were the three that opened the door for me and opened the door of opportunity to be able to go to school and go to Miami-Dade College and eventually graduate with three degrees from MDC.
1: What What degrees have you graduated with?
3: So I have a degree in, my first degree was an Associates in Arts and Music Education, And then from there, I wanted to extend my international student visa. So I did an associate's in science in early childhood education. Uh, And then I went on to do a bachelor's degree in special education.
1: And what are you doing now?
3: So I just finished um, one of the biggest, I think, fights of my life. Um, My short, you know, 27 years lived life. I became an immigrant rights activist and one of the things that I feel very accomplished and very proud uh, is the fact that we were able to win Deferred Action uh, for dreamers or, or sp- specific uh, dreamers. And uh, as an immigrant rights activist doing all this work right now, I'm taking time off and I'm stepping back so that other leaders could come and continue the work uh, and especially in a young people's movement, there's a time where you don't kind of relate to the 18 years old anymore. So I'm stepping back. I'm trying to figure out what's next in my life, uh, because I do want to go to school. I want to make sure that one day, uh, when people call me, they say, Dr. Pacheco, right? I want to get my doctor's degree. And the other thing is that my passion and my love uh, it's actually working with people with mental disabilities, specifically people with Down Syndrome and autism. And so uh, doing the work of, or being inside immigration, um, it takes a lot, a lot of work. You have to give it your all. And um, I felt that it's is two distinct paths that I've learned a lot, but it's not, it's not my calling, which is to work with people. Uh, with Down syndrome, autism, people with mental disabilities. So I've taken the time to stop, reflect, and figure out, you know, how do I get to my end goal, which is getting my doctor's degree and working in in my field.
1: Yeah. When you hear from people, hey, you know what, if they're here illegally, they're here illegally, they need to get in the back of the line, and they need to leave, how do you respond?
3: So... I feel very. I try to come people and meet them at where they're at. Whenever they tell me things like "you're illegal" or "you you you are just a criminal," and I try to explain to them uh, one of the the big myths, right? And it's that we don't want to become citizens, for instance. And I try to explain to them that even if I wanted to pay 10 million dollars to the government to an attorney to help me make the line, there is no line. And so I try to to tell people that and I, uh, in a very compassionate and loving way because I feel that people don't, it's not that they hate us, it's just that they don't understand us. And uh, many times I've had, many times people do that and have that conversation. It's very uncomfortable because you kind of have to just prove yourself But um, I would say that 90% of the time when I've had the conversation with people and I've told my story, people have come to say, okay, I get it. We need to reform our immigration system. Or I get it. You know, it's not your fault. There's something bigger that is not allowing you to integrate completely into our community. And I think that the biggest thing that usually Makes people understand is when I say and I show them how much I love this country and how much, as much as if this is their home, this is also my home.
0: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then, there are drinks from McDonald's.
1: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
0: ba da The Car Pro Show podcast is available on iHeart, Apple, and Spotify. I can't take my husband anywhere. He's
2: constantly behaving like a five-year-old, snorting, joking, yapping with strangers. It's so embarrassing. that the one period when he's fully engrossed in anything is if he's listening to the Car Pro Show podcast.
1: Here
0: they are now on the Car Pro Show. Ooh.
2: He gets to hear Jerry and Kevin share all the latest and greatest news and information about the CarPro Friends universe, reviews and commentary on all the newer vehicle lineups from every major brand, stories and testimonials about ultimate car buying experiences through CarPro.com, and certified CarPro Friends at dealers nationwide. My only regret is when this two-hour break from you-know-who ends. Save yourself! Grab some me time by tuning into the CarPro Show podcast on your device anytime, anywhere.
0: Listen to the CarPro Show on iHeart, Apple, and Spotify. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by CarPro.com, where you now have a friend in the car buying business. Carpro.com.
1: I'm sure that over the course of the work that you've done on behalf of immigrant rights, you've met countless other young people like yourself, who were brought here as children and have faced many of the same issues. Um Have there been many commonalities in your experiences? Can you talk to me about that?
3: Regardless if people came in a plane, came through Mexico or Canada, uh, I think that the struggles that we have in the United States as immigrants uh, really tie us and bond us together. And um, the discrimination that we go through is not the discrimination, for instance, that African-Americans go through, right? It's it's discrimination overall, but it's more of all of us are in this cage and we're able and allowed to participate in the community either by uh, working, right, in the fields, working in the hotel industry and making people's beds or at restaurants, right. We're allowed to do certain things, but there comes a time where you want to walk out of that cage and do certain things like go to school, get a better job, um, uh, travel and see the world. And we come to the reality that we are inside that cage and like, Poor little birds probably could see the world around them. But as soon as they try to fly out, they hit themselves against that. And I think that those commonalities we all have. And there's this fire that we have inside of us to achieve and be able to seek those dreams that we have. But we're not allowed to and we're not able to. And I think that the the single most thing that... uh, unites us, and when I talk to young people all over, is fear, right? This fear that we all have, that we all live in the shadow, and that uh, that sense of we cannot do things. Like, you cannot drive, you cannot go to school, uh, you cannot travel. Um, and, it's, and I think that those disheartening um, obstructions that we have in our lives kind of bring us together and we're able to relate and say, oh yeah, I couldn't get that job that I got offered making eighty thousand dollars a year because I don't have papers. So I'm making 18. And it's like, yeah, me too. You know, (laughs) I got offered this really great job to be a manager at a McDonald's, but you know, I'm just now I the only thing I could do is is flip burgers.
1: If suddenly students without their documentation are allowed to stay and allowed to study and allowed to realize their dreams. um, Would that necessarily be a good thing for the country and why?
3: I think that we're in the 21st century. And when we think about the United States and our country as a whole, we can't think of the borders that just surround us. Uh, That's no longer a reality for us we're in the 21st century where globalization, it's happening at a rapid pace. And if we don't educate the people that live in our country, the people that grew up here that know the streets and our boyfriends and girlfriends and partners to our children grew up with us. If we don't allow those people, regardless of their status or not in this country to get an education, we are going to fall behind. And we are not gonna be a country that is part of the 21st century. And I think that for us as a country that has been going through a bad uh, recession and we've been going through an economic crisis, the best way to come out of that crisis is to make sure that we have people that speak different languages, that could compete against other people in the world, that could go to work and make uh, money in order to pay taxes in order for the (laughs) the economy to continue to circulate. And so I I think that for those people that say, well, you know, we shouldn't give those opportunities to those people because, you know, they're here wrongfully. uh, I think that it's a very bad, bad way of thinking about it. Uh, because those people are their neighbors. Those people are the people that they go to church with. And so um, by holding back other folks, what you actually do is create a very big uh, gap between those that have and those that don't.
1: Hmm. We have a very contentious election just weeks away, and there are many who are in, in, in your position um, who are not allowed to vote. Uh, but they also have a lot of friends and family that are in a position to vote. That's right. What would you like those that are in fact in a position to vote to know about this situation and consider as they make their final decision to cast a vote?
3: So I think that the most important thing that one of the, as human beings we have here and people who are citizens um, is the right to vote. And when I talk to people, be my, f- my family or friends, and they tell me, oh, I'm not going to vote because, you know, X, Y, and C, I get so angry. I get angry because I look at what is happening in the Middle East. When I see a 14 year old get shot because she's speaking out and saying that she wants to get an education. And I think about the women here in this country who have that ability to get an education and are looked at as equal. But less than 100 years ago, they had to fight in order to be able to vote. And people take that lightly, and I think that that shouldn't be taken lightly. So that's one stance. The other stance is there's so much at stake. And the less that we show the power that we have as a community to say who should be in power or not, the less politicians are going to listen to us. And as a Latina, I know that my community is suffering with unemployment rates being high, with a majority of the undocumented people being Latino or Latina, and politicians just brushing off those issues because we don't vote. And so I tell I had a conversation with my uncle and he was like, Oh, you know, it's just going to be such a waste of time. And I said, no, you have to. And I remember him saying, okay, I'm going to do it. He became a citizen. He has registered to vote and he is going to be voting. And I am, I'm really proud of that. And I hope that the people that I consider my friends on November 6th, go out and vote for me for the 14-year-old that got shot because she wants to get an education and for the women that put their lives on risk and some even died to be able to have that opportunity to be looked at as equal and go up you know, and cast a ballot and, and decide who the, the next leader uh, for them, for this country is going to be.
1: If you could give advice to a recently arrived eight-year-old girl, what would you
3: say? Oh, uh, this makes me teary. <laughs> um, I love children. I love children. So um, I think that they're the most precious thing. And what I would say to an eight year old is whatever you set your mind to, you could do it. Don't let anybody ever tell you you can't. Um, And I grew up like that, with that thought in my mind. I had so many people tell me, you can't. I had my high school counselor tell me, you can't go to college. Don't even apply. You have to be careful because you're going to put yourself in deportation proceeding and your whole family. You can't. Don't put yourself out there. Um, I had people that would tell me, oh, you can't ride a bicycle. That's too tall for you. You can't, uh, you can't sing, you can't uh, take that class and get a good grade because it's too advanced for you. And I pushed myself and I did it. And I'm here and I'm successful and I've been successful in everything I've done. And so to that eight-year-old girl, whatever you set your mind to, you can.
2: Today, Gabby Bacheco is a nationally known speaker. She has written many opinion pieces for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the USA Today to name just a few. She can be seen regularly on national television, giving her opinion on networks like Univision, MSNBC, CNN, and Telemundo. And she was even part of a jazz album ensemble that won three Grammy Awards back in 2019. While the effects of her efforts are difficult to put into context, consider this. As program director at the Dream.US, the scholarship program which she works on has raised over $350 million and has awarded over 8,000 scholarships to highly motivated undocumented students. Clearly, we're a better nation for having people like Gabby championing such important causes while fueling the dreams of other talented young men and women who are prepared to contribute to the American experiment if only given the opportunity to do so. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The Immigrant Archive Project is edited and co-produced by Edie Gonzalez. Our director of photography is Daniel Godoy. For more stories, please visit us online at immigrantarchiveproject.org. I'm Tony Hernandez, thanks for listening.